0: We need to take all of these millions and millions and millions of dollars that are being talked about and funnel some of it back into development golf. You can grow the game in different ways, but for the health and the respect of the men's professional game, they need to start looking after what happens down at MENA Tour level, Alps Tour level, Mexican Tour, PGA of Latin America, etc.
1: Dave how's it going?
0: Very good Daniel. I'm in a beautiful Portrush in Northern Ireland at the moment uh, and uh, it's perfect golfing weather and lots and lots of golfers over here uh, enjoying the incredible links and all the golf that Northern Ireland has
1: to offer. Love that. Did you bring your sticks as well? Do you play usually when you travel?
0: I uh, I try to. I used to play a lot when I was uh younger and thinner, Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't play as much these days, but it still hasn't uh, affected my passion for the great game that we all love.
1: Absolutely. Where's your favorite place in the world to play golf before we kind of get into this?
0: Well, I love uh, Scotland. Mm -hmm. Um, My particular favorite there is Turnberry, Uh, but I love Scottish golf. And I also love uh, the, the South in America places like uh kira island harbour town because mm-hmm. um, i think you know they've got such great hospitality over there mm-hmm. and then of course uh, you know being coming from dubai uh, i think t- dubai has become a quite extraordinary golfing destination uh, with incredible service impeccably manicured golf courses and uh you know, playing golf in the heart of one of the most dynamic cities in the world.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Before we wait, so did you ever play real fast? Because you mentioned the South. Did you ever play or have you ever played Augusta National? Uh,
0: yes, um, but a, a, a long uh, time ago. Um, and obviously, that was a, a really special treat. Um, and a- also special for me because the first pro. Uh, at augusta national was named david spencer so uh oh really i, I pretended I, I pretended i was him but i didn't play like him of course
1: yeah they, did they give you a plaque or a, you know put your name on uh you there's got to be a lot of david spencer stuff out there right whether your name's on uh you know like a plaque or bench or something i know a lot of clubs do that but no that's crazy that's a that's a really interesting coincidence there
0: well i couldn't find anything with his name on it or uh, my name on it but uh Yeah, it was a great honor to play there.
1: Absolutely. All right, so kind of bringing it to you, um, you know, where are you from? Kind of what's your background and how did you sort of rise the ranks and become commissioner of the Minotaur?
0: Well, it's a a long story, but I'll keep it short for your listeners. Um, I come from Australia. Uh, I went to school in Australia and uh, university in Australia. Uh, And then I was really lucky, uh, my first job uh, out of university. I worked for Australia's richest man, uh, a fantastic individual named Kerry Packer. Uh, And Kerry Packer, of course, uh, might not be as famous in the United States, but was hugely famous uh, in sport uh, throughout the rest of the world because he's the guy that changed cricket um, and took on the establishment um and you know cricket now uh it's the second largest participation sport in the world uh, and a lot of the popularity of cricket and the dynamic growth of cricket was because of my first boss uh Kerry Packer um and uh you know a lot of uh Greg Norman knows Kerry Packer very well and uh during uh the live side of things I used to uh WhatsApp Greg and say uh I think Mr. Packer's looking over your shoulder from down above and be very proud of uh, what you're trying to do with the changes that he's trying to make in the world of golf. Uh, But after working with Kerry Packer, uh, I worked um, in my golf career, I worked with uh, a company called Troon Golf, who are based in Arizona, Um, and they set up a business in Australia, uh, which was a joint venture between Macquarie Bank and Greg Norman. Uh, And we developed uh, a lot of golf residential communities in Australia. Uh, And then we tried to spread our wings overseas. I was in charge of business development. Um, And uh, we went to Japan and uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, But then we we were really lucky because we paid a visit to the United Arab Emirates um, and got the biggest management contract in Troon's history. Uh, at a golf course called the Montgomery in Dubai, which was uh, partially built, uh, and we finished that off, um, and I'm, I moved to Dubai with my team, uh, mainly Australians um, and some New Zealanders, um, and once we got to Dubai, uh, the Middle East uh, was really beginning to take on golf development, uh, so we got a lot of work done.
1: Right. So what years are we talking? Again, kind of give people context into the, the time period. So
0: uh, that's early 2000s okay. um, was, was when I moved to Dubai. Um, I worked in the golf industry in Australia from uh, 1990 uh, through until the 2000s. And then prior to that, um, I was working in Kerry Packer's sports companies um, in Australia, straight from school. Um, so, I, so I've always had a bit of a passion for the sports industry and uh, I was lucky enough to be able to turn it into a career. Uh, I didn't have the talent to play sport at the highest levels, um, but uh, you know, I, I think I could think about sports in the highest levels and what it needed uh, and how I could try and make a career out of, uh, if you like, the sports administration industry, uh, which I did. Um, and then uh, once I got settled in Dubai, uh, I was approached by the government of Dubai um, to start their own golf company uh, and build out um, I think, four or five more, more golf courses.
1: So at that time in Dubai, what was golf like? I mean, was golf big in culture? I mean, I'm assuming from what I understand, and again, I don't know much about the culture. I feel like football or soccer, you know, 90% of the audience here as Americans would probably be at the time, like the biggest sport, right? Yeah, soccer uh,
0: is by far the number one sport. Uh, and also anything to do with the Olympics. Uh, the Middle East are very interested in Olympic sport. But of course, uh, you know, the Middle East has been fueled by a lot of expatriates. Um, And, you know, these expatriates were looking for an outlet. Um, So golf uh, became a natural thing for us to develop uh, because we also could develop real estate. Um, And, you know, Dubai and the Middle East was a very strong real estate market. Um, You know, we, we have over 4 billion people um, living within a four-hour plane flight of Dubai. And most of those 4 billion people think that Dubai provides a better lifestyle. Um, so we saw a lot of uh, people moving to Dubai uh, by, to base their businesses, uh, expatriates coming in as the city grew, and the, the demand for golf became huge. Um, and in fact, um, you know, we, we could not uh, demand outstripped supply um uh for a long time um and it became uh you know a hugely popular pastime uh, and then of course uh back um we became the first uh country outside of Euro- europe to host a european tour event um and we now have you know the extremely successful dubai desert classic which has been held for I I want to say 32 years, 33 years. Uh, And, of course, the Race to Dubai, the season-ending event for the top 60, uh, the Order of Merit, which is called the Race to Dubai on the European Tour, uh, and the DP uh, Tour World Championship, uh, which is held is the season-ending event. And and both of those, um, both the Race to Dubai and the season-ending event, were initiatives of, of my team. Um so I, I worked very closely with the European Tour uh back in two thousand and six, two thousand and seven when we made the announcement of the race to Dubai.
1: Wow so you started the race to Dubai you were, you were influential in, in really like, you know, the execution of that, right?
0: Well I, I suppose I actually <laughs> I started it, I, I'd say. Um and I uh I remember uh, thinking back in those days, it was a ten year deal. It was one hundred and seventy three million dollars that deal um, and and was sort of labeled back in those days as the mother of all sponsorships. Um, it gets somewhat dwarfed uh, when we speak when we fast forward to today, uh, but it it actually made the European tour a realistic competitor. Um, to the PGA Tour, and we we had guys from the PGA Tour uh, back in those early 2000s joining the European Tour, Uh, and big names at the time, uh, names like Camilo Villegas, um, Anthony Kim, uh, 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 a shout from the past. Um,
1: Yeah, I love Anthony Kim. Camilo as well, you know? I mean, it's kind of nostalgic you're saying these names because these are guys I grew up with, you know, watching all the time. But I remember always, you know, waking up early and watching European Tour uh, golf as, as a kid. Um, but I kind of want to talk a little bit about Race Dubai. I mean, for years, guys would always go over from the PGA Tour and play in these these events as like sponsor sort of correct. exemptions, right?
0: That, that's correct. I mean, we, we um, the big shot, uh, for in the arm um, for us in Dubai was um, we brought Tiger Woods over to pl- to play in the Dubai Desert Classic, and unfortunately uh, he was scheduled to play in two thousand and three, um, but because of the the Gulf War uh, uh, he, he he wasn't able to come, uh, but he came in two thousand um, and four, uh, and. We'd already paid him for 2003. This is actually quite a funny story. Um, and he, uh, his manager, Mark Steinberg, said, oh, well, we'll, we'll send the money back. And, and we suggested, well, look, why don't you hang on to the money? It was a lot of money back in those days. Why don't you hang on to the money, uh, come next year, but do one favor for us for having our money for the year? And he said, well, what favor do you want? And we said, well, look, we don't, we don't know yet, but we'll think about it. So Mark and Tiger agreed to that. And then uh, Tiger agreed in 2004, March 2004, uh, to hit a golf ball off the helipad of the Burj Al Arab uh, seven-star hotel um, in Dubai. And that was uh, streamed live on CNN and around the world. And, of course, we all go back um, to the great Bobby Jones shot at the Masters. They say that was the shot that was heard around the world when he made the double eagle. But, uh, in fact, for Dubai, Tiger hitting uh, the golf ball off the helipad of the bergel Arab was the shot uh, that put Dubai sort of into the forefront uh, of European golf and world golf. Um, and, you know, our, our goal was uh, to take the focus of professional golf in Europe and turn it east, you know, turn it to the Middle East, because, you know, we, we also had the huge advantage of having incredible weather and incredible golf courses in the European winter. Um, So with everything that Dubai had had and has to offer, it became a massively popular destination for European golfers. And uh, you know, we we built that on the back of professional golf.
1: Time value of money too, you know, Tiger keeping, uh, keeping that. That's pretty sweet. So we hit the shot. So, so from there, I mean, did that inspire, like you had said, that just inspired even more and more people around Dubai to to pick up a golf club and and get out on the course and and really just have an opportunity to to love the game? Because Tiger's influence is obviously massive.
0: Right? Yeah, I mean, look we 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 always kept very detailed records um, of when Tiger would come and play, <clears throat> and yeah, uh, you know, we did have yeah you know, we would sell out. Uh, of when when Tiger was coming, we'd sell every entrance ticket. We'd sell every piece of hospitality. We'd have to build more. Um, and, you know, at the time, we, we had an incredible roster of players. It wasn't just Tiger. You know, we had Ernie Ells in his prime. Uh, Greg Norman used to come and play. Sergio Garcia. Uh, I mean, Lee Westwood, Ian Poulter. Uh, you know, we had the who's who of golf. Uh, playing in the Dubai Desert Classic and then subsequently the race to Dubai. But I will say um, that there is only one Tiger um, and the the effect that he had on uh, our tournament, our golf industry and our city was uh, uh, monumental.
1: So then kind of looking past that, you know, the shot, the growth. I mean, when we think about Dubai as a city and just like golf courses that are around Are they all over the place? I mean, I don't know. I've never been to Dubai. So, like, I'm kind of living vicariously through you, right?
0: Well, I mean, we have uh, the United Arab Emirates, the country, uh, is made up of seven states. Um, Each of those states, uh, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, Alain, uh, Fujairah, Russell Kama, um, each of the seven states has its own golf courses now. That wasn't the case uh, back in the early two thousands, and and let me tell you, they are quality golf courses, Daniel. Uh, I mean, we're talking, uh, you know, sort of true north um, courses like, uh, yeah, some of the great courses in Sh- uh, Shadow Creek in in Las Vegas. These are absolute quality desert courses with incredible service. Um, so you know, when I when I got there, I think there were four golf courses. And I think now there's, there's close to 20. Um, and these are big golf courses uh, with big clubhouses, uh, lots of amenities, mm-hmm. um, very, very successful uh, merchandise businesses, food and beverages biz- businesses. Uh, you know, it's become a real uh, golfing uh, capital of, of that part of the world. Uh, and, in fact, all, right. all the Middle East, uh, you know, as as we can subsequently talk about when we talk about, places like oman and qatar and now of course uh, uh on the front pages all the time of sport you know is, is saudi arabia and what they're doing in golf.
1: right no i'm looking at the uh the top courses right now yas links al mauj trump international al yeah trump international There's- dubai hills yep. Yeah, these courses look pretty incredible. And I mean, they're all they're, they're sort of like in metropolitan areas. They're on the ocean or on like a body of water. I mean, it's pretty diverse too when you look at and think about golf in the Middle East as far as like landscape goes.
0: Well, I mean, the, the great thing, uh, we had Pete Dye come and visit us uh, many times as, as an advisor when he was alive. Uh, he and his wife, Alice. Um, and he used to always to encourage us uh, he used to say to us, you know, all the greatest golf courses in the world, uh, or most of the greatest golf courses in the world, are built on sand. And he said, you don't have any shortage of that here, um, <laughs> which we didn't. And of course, we, you know, we're we we're, we're on the Persian Gulf, on the, um, so we have the ability to access water. Uh, and one of one of the interesting things was, as as the region has grown. Um, there has been incredible infrastructure. So we have uh, great treated sewage effluent water, which we can use on our golf courses. <clears throat> and also, uh, Dubai has one of the, the most successful, uh, aluminium, or as you guys would say, aluminum, um, pl- right. plants. In the, Americans, you know, uh, plants in the world. And, um, uh, to make aluminum, you need a lot of steam. So, uh, we were desalinating, water from the Gulf. Um, and b- before the golf courses and the city grew, we needed to pump desalinated water back into the Gulf. It was a waste of, uh, of the process. Um, so we, we diverted that water and used it for building, you know, parks and gardens, um, golf courses and, you know, our, our city uh, despite how fast it's grown and how big it is, uh, is still very sustainable in many ways.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I've heard great things about Dubai. You know, like super clean, super safe, beautiful city. A lot of a lot of great things to do. So, when you kind of dial into like the demographics of golf in Dubai, is it like where is it sort of distributed? Is it mostly like you know younger people? Is it middle aged people? Is it older people? I mean, like who's who's playing the game right now?
0: Um, I mean, in Dubai, uh, it's a very strong uh, expatriate demographic. Um, we haven't had a huge amount of success in growing the game uh, throughout schools um, uh, until Top Golf came along, <laughs> uh, and now that's one of the mo- that, that's at Emirates Golf Club and one of the most successful installations, entertainment stations that we have in the city. Uh, but we still have a very strong expatriate uh, demographic, sort of uh, families um, in their 40s with their children at school. Um, the young kids have uh, adapted very strongly to top golf. Um, and we are seeing a lot more interest coming from the Arab community, particularly because of top golf. Um, so, uh, and then of course, you know, tourism uh i think it's fair to say dubai has probably um one of the greatest if not the greatest airlines in the world in emirates um and you know we have worked with emirates and become a great golf destination from from but particularly from europe very very popular from europe
1: yeah they're one of the main sponsors right or they were
0: yeah they've they've been a big sponsor big sponsor of the dp world tour Uh, formerly the European tour. And that's another great thing. You know, we now have um, the DP World Tour. DP World is a Dubai-based global logistics company um, and one of the most successful companies in the world. So, you know, when I got to Dubai, we were sort of trying to tell people what golf was. Um, And now we have one of Dubai's born and bred companies uh, you know, the, the European Tour is now named uh, the DP World Tour. So I think that's a great example of of how golf has grown in the region. And I also think, you know, when I got back, when I got to Dubai, if someone was going to tell me um, that the European Tour's order of merit would be renamed the race to Dubai in 2008, um, you know, it's a long time ago now, uh, you know, I would have told them that they were insane. Uh, but Dubai is full of great visionary leaders uh, and people that give you the ability to make things happen. Um, and when there's a great idea, like the race to Dubai or like the DP tour, uh, naming the European tour, the DP world tour, these, uh, these dreams become the blueprints of reality.
1: And then kind of just looking further than that, live golf, right? I mean... That uh, is obviously a topic that a lot of people are talking about uh, these days, right? The merger that um, is sort of set to take place here. So I'm excited to talk about that with you as well. And um, and hear kind of your thoughts and your opinions. Like at the end of the day, for me, I'm just a fan of golf. Like I want to see the golf, golf grow as a as an industry as a sport. Golf is something that uh, changed my life. And I think the more people that Play golf the better right it 's something that again positively impacted me, and like kind of seeing how quickly live has grown into prominence has been interesting I mean, you said dubai is is full of leaders uh, who who make things happen right I mean like in a quick year year and a half i mean we 've seen all this prominence of live all this talk and and things actually like move forward it 's just been interesting to see as a fan.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, uh, I think your listeners may not know this, but um, the concept of, uh, if we want to call it a breakaway tour, um, and I'm not going back to Greg Norman's days of the world tour, uh, but the concept of the breakaway tour has been around for quite a long time um, with uh, PGL through a guy called Andy Gardner, and I think that, you know, w- w- in, during our tournaments um, prior to Live coming around, there were a lot of meetings going on uh, about how to, uh, n- n- not with us, but um, you know, with, with managers and players of how to extract more value from golf. And
1: um what does that mean? Well, I
0: this is this is a great <laughs> this is what I want to answer. So, you know, every all, I've grown up in an industry where everyone's standard answer um was mm-hmm. we have to grow the game. We're going to grow the game. We're going right. to do this, and we're going to grow the game. Well, I never really saw I've I've seen two things in my career, which has been a long one that have grown the game of golf. Uh one is top golf mm-hmm. um and the other is COVID-19. Um, you know, COVID-19, all of a sudden people wanted to be outside for a few hours. Uh, they wanted to be apart from, me, you know, <laughs> be apart from me. I mean, golf was the perfect.
1: Each other really, uh, I mean, you're stuck inside, right? Yeah. So,
0: uh, golf became, you know, golf has boomed. Um, uh, now top golf, I think is an incredible grow the game initiative. Um, and COVID mm-hmm. is a sort of a, you know, it's an unusual <laughs> Uh, initiative, uh, or something that's happened to golf. Um, <laughs> right. but I, you know, I don't, I've never really seen anything else that has been truly growing the game. Um, so I think that, I think it's fair to say that, and we put a couple of players to, to one side, but I think it's fair to say that the, the rank and file or the, the, Average player, and look, these guys mm-hmm. and girls are a lot more than average. They're professional players, making a living. But I, I do think that everything they, everything was being dictated to by the tours. Uh, whether it was you know uh, the Tim Finchams back in the day, or Georgia Grady, or subsequently Jay Monahan and Keith Pelly, um, you know there there wasn't a lot of input. Uh, The players own the tours. That's one of the things that's not really known. Um, But the players, um, I don't think, have been treated as shareholders of their tour. Um, You know, they have no control uh, over the salaries of the executives. Um, They have no control where they go and play. Obviously, they can pick and choose. Uh, They have no real control um, over the rules and regulations of the tour, then of course you know the the tours would respond that they have an advisory council, and you know I'd really deeply underline the word advisory because that's mm-hmm. you know, it was just advice. Um, quite often yeah. the two tour- so
1: they would essentially like have someone that would represent the players on the board in like a you well, know a board meeting, right? Well,
0: no, the the, the players that uh, would have uh, an advisory council that would advise um the the tour um but you know it didn't mean it it didn't really have any teeth um and you know we 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 go back to um you know the days of nicholas and palmer the days the early days of greg norman uh and then of course tiger and rory and uh players like that and you know uh phil mickelson you know these are uh the box office players um and they tend to drag as the, tu- uh, you know, the tour becomes more successful um, because they have. You know, we'll just use Tiger as an example. Um, so the tour can make demands on sponsors, um, can make demands on players, um, but a lot of that was very short-term thinking because you know we'd all <clears throat> would say to ourselves, "My goodness, what would happen? You know, God forbid anything happened to Tiger." What's the succession plan? Um, are these players being rewarded fairly? I'm talking as a, uh, an administrator of, a, of, of an OWGR tour, but also as a you know, promoter of many golf events. Um, and, you know, when, you'd, um, when you deal with these tours, if you had big events um, and, you know, the, the Dubai is the classics, one of the biggest on the European tour. They, they, they were very, the European tour back in those days was very dictatorial. Um, To promoters, you know, it's sort of like you're lucky to have us here. Um, So I think everyone forgot who the customers were. Um, And I think that we forgot to a certain degree um, that what have made these tours so popular are the really popular players um so i i think that yeah
1: i agree because you want to watch your favorite player you know from whether it doesn't and it doesn't matter if it's on pga tour or live i completely agree with that and that's something that i always like you know I thought of during you know you're hearing about guys moving like does it is it the tour or is it the player and like you said and like i agree i really think it's the player because if you know a tiger were to go somewhere else or like some guy with this big pole like they naturally bring their fans over, right? Yeah.
0: And, and Liv, Liv is an example of that. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, it, it was incredible that they were able to get the likes of Brooks kepka Dustin Johnson, um, and Phil Mickelson, of course. Um, and, you know, so they, have, they have a really incredible – I mean, look, <clears throat> I would be very proud if I was a promoter to have those players in a field, if I was promoting a golf tournament, um, and I sort of think um, that all of the animosity uh, between the PGA Tour and you know now it's it's sibling in the in the DP World Tour towards Live, I actually think that was a big advantage for Live, um, and uh you know the, we saw this week uh, this week live golfers in Valderrama, uh, we saw this week mm-hmm. uh you know Sergio talking about getting his friend back uh in rory McIlroy. um because you know i think uh i'm pretty sure in saying that Sir, uh, rory was uh, Sergio's best man in his wedding and Sergio mm-hmm. was best man at rory's wedding Um, so, you know, this splintering of all the players, um, could not be good for the game. And then, uh, you know, the players started sniping with each other on social media. And I think that, um, I really have to say, uh, I think that picking out things, um, to be critical, uh, of Saudi Arabia about would just, I think that was a really dangerous path for the PGA Tour to go down, um, and I think that you know what we've seen in the last couple of weeks, um, with this talks of this alliance or merger or whatever word they're going to use, I you know I words they're going to use to describe this, I think that um, is a little bit of the PGA Tour saying. We, we have really metaphors here that, that we thought we could make go away. Um, we stood by, let the players argue with each other. There was no real leadership from the non live side of it. Uh, I didn't, uh, there was, I never saw any real calmness uh, through the leadership uh, of the PGA Tour. Um, and, you know, I think everything was run on emotion, um, and I think at the end of the day, any business that you're involved with, if you run it purely on emotion, uh, you're going to end up in trouble. <clears throat> um, mm-hmm. And I think that's sort of what's happened yeah. to you.
1: Well, that's so- something that was interesting. Like when you watch that interview between Jay Monahan and Yasir, uh, like they talk a little, I mean, they, it's all business. Like they talk about how, you know, the PGA is going to be moving into a nonprofit. And look, I'm not an accountant or like a business analyst or professional. I mean, Like when you just listen to that first, the first 10 minutes of it, it's like they're talking about business. It's not necessarily about golf, right? Yep.
0: And, you know, look, I mean, golf is an emotional business. Uh, You know, we've seen uh, throughout the great amateur game uh, game of golf, professional game of golf, there are emotional things that happen. Um, I think it's interesting, you know, if you talk about, I think the most emotional thing in golf uh, I've ever seen is the Ryder Cup, and I've been to a lot of them. Um and you know I think it's really interesting now if you think if you looked at uh the European tours finances, uh, that tour basically didn't make any money, uh, three out of four years, then they would have a European based Ryder Cup, uh, whether it was in France or or uh, Scotland, uh, and they would fill up their coffers, uh, and have mm-hmm. a lot of money in the bank. Uh, And then, you know, they'd spend it all and then they'd have another Ryder Cup and they'd fill up their coffers again. But what I think is really interesting about this is that the Europe, you know, the PGA Tour now does not own any of the Ryder Cup, uh, the American Ryder Mm -hmm. Cup. It's it's not their business. Now they're going into business with the European Tour, who does own over 90% of the European Ryder Cup. So the PGA Tour mm-hmm. will own the European Ryder Cup team. I think that's really mm-hmm. ironic. <laughs> and right. I, yeah. I, I don't particularly understand. I mean, who, uh, I mean, let's hope Jay's <clears throat> back in the helm from his sickness. Who's Jay going to be cheering for in the Ryder Cup? Um, right. Is he going to be cheering for the American team that he has no ownership stake in? Or is he going to be cheering for the European Tour because he does have an ownership stake in that. Um, I mean, this is where this whole thing has become overly complicated.
1: Right. You know, and as a consumer, as someone who's just a fan, it's it's wild to see. Like, we're in this interesting place uh, in golf. And, you know, as a fan, we feel kind of like left in the dark. We don't know, know what's going on. But then it sounds like players are as well. I mean, I remember when the news dropped. I thought it was fake news. And I remember hearing... You're seeing tweets that, uh, you know, PGA pros were saying that they had found out about the merger via Twitter, right? Yeah. So it's definitely still kind of like an interesting time to be a fan. But I think it's like a really great spot for the game because it's like, all right, well, what's next? Like, what's the next golf sort of like growing force? You'd mentioned Top Golf, You'd mentioned COVID-19. And I think like the next version of that is – you know the unification of like these tours promoting growth of the game i really think that's like the next thing
0: yeah but i mean how are they going to do that you know they need uh some young people uh in the organization on the administration side of it uh being an old mm-hmm. guy myself i always you know it's called the golf administrators the blue blazer brigade um mm-hmm. and this all still around um, you know, we we need young people.
1: <laughs> like who specifically, though? Like,
0: well, I mean, uh, you know, when I uh, whether it's Jay Monaghan or whether it's uh, mm-hmm. Keith Pelle, um, or whether it's Martin Slumbers, um, Mike Wan, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, Seth War. Um, you know, these guys—they're all very, very capable guys, um, mm-hmm. but. The, and I, I include myself in this, Daniel, you know, the world's moved past us. Um, we've got experience as a group of individuals. Um, you know, we've got a great network, great group of friends, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But this is, you know, golf is moving so fast. Uh, we need young people at the helm. Um, you know, the, I, I can see why Liv chose Greg Norman, um, as their tour commissioner. But, I mean, in fairness, Greg Norman's, you know, 68, 69 years old next February, uh, still, you know, mm-hmm. looks fit and is fit. Um, but <clears throat> there are young people out there that can shape the game. And, you know, it takes – it's sort of like being – you guys don't have a royal family over there. But it's sort of like uh, by the time you get a big job in the administration of golf, it reminds me of King Charles of England. Um, because, you know, he waited all his life for his mother to pass away, the great queen of England, Um, and now he's got the job and he's nearly 80 years old. Um, So, you know, people in the golf industry that see, if you want to describe it as a glass ceiling, and in fact I'd describe it as a concrete ceiling, they're not going to waste their time saying, oh, I'm hoping to get, uh, a really influential job in the game of golf by the time i'm in my mid 50s um because you know these these older guys are just not stepping aside and we're, we're not um we're not breeding um or nurturing or mentoring enough young people in the administration side of the game and i actually think the players mm-hmm. see that
1: yeah, is that ch- that, and you don't see that really changing, like into the future, right? I mean, with the shakeup, do you do you think that that could potentially, you know, well, I would th- challenge some people, or yeah, yeah, like, I, where do you think that it's going go? to go?
0: I mean, Yasser is a great thinker. Um, I don't know Yasser personally, um, but I know a lot about him. Uh, I've read a lot about him, and I know people that have dealt with him. He is a you know he he is not. Uh, the chairman of one of the biggest companies in the world in Aramco. Um, He's not the governor of the public investment fund uh, (coughs) uh, of Saudi Arabia because he's just uh, an Arab national. He's a very smart uh, visionary, very highly educated. And I think, you know, uh, with the vision of 2030 um, in Saudi, which is about young people, Saudi has a very young population I I think you'll see Yasser encouraging young people to be hired by this new golf entity, perhaps people not even from the game of golf, from different uh, walks of life, different roads of life. Um, And let's see. you know, I can keep judging the game of golf because I've been involved with it my whole life, but my ideas are probably wrong and stale. Um, And we don't need, uh, you know, there's always going to be this turnover of young golfers there will, you know, there is another um, Scotty Scheffler on the horizon. There is another Tommy Fleetwood in Europe, um, but I don't see uh, a Tommy Fleetwood in golf administration uh, or a Scotty Scheffler. There's no one. <clears throat> everyone's too comfortable. The salaries are too high, um, and you know why would you want to move if you were Jay Monahan? Why would you be wanting to create a succession plan? You know, if I I was earning that sort of money, I'd want to hang on to that job as long as I possibly could. Yeah, I'll tell you a funny story. Um, When we introduced the race to Dubai, um, which was, uh, uh, you know, the European Tour Order of Merit, um, Keith Pelley, the the race to Dubai is at the end of the year. And Keith Pelley's salary was published. And um, I uh, during the race to Dubai, the week of the race to Dubai, and I said to Keith, "Are you nervous about Thursday?" And he said, "Well, you know, why, why would I be nervous about Thursday?" I said, "Well, according to my calculations, you're second in the race to Dubai by money, and you're going to be playing with Rory. Um, I mean, how is it? Uh, how does that happen? Uh, well, you know? Um, I I just think there's been." there's not been enough focus. That's
1: interesting to hear because like, that's one of the things that a lot of people will, will criticize live players for is taking the money, taking the money. Right. When like you look at the leadership and you look at like sponsors, sponsorships, it's not necessarily like the full picture. Right.
0: I I think,
1: um, you
0: know, uh, the tours, uh, obviously, um, you know, there's, there's tours that struggle. Uh, you know, like the Asian tour, good tour led by a young uh, person, um, Cho Min Tant, who's And, you know, he, he, he's he been thrown a lifeline um, by the PGA Tour and DP World Tour um, <clears throat> by, you know, Liv needed to put money somewhere uh, to sort of start this thing off. And, and the Asian tour... I don't think they've done a great job with it, by the way, the Asian Tour yet, but they will. You know, it's early days. Um, and, you know, the, the, the everything's just too stagnant. We think golf's changing um, and, you know, we are seeing major changes. But behind the scenes, it's very stagnant. I mean, look at the OWGR um, and the MENA Tour. I think it's a classic example. All of the live players, as you know, joined the mena tour. Uh, <clears throat> we put, uh, we followed. I know a lot about the OWGR. I'm a great fan of the system. Um, I'm a great fan of the chairman, Peter Dawson, who uh, is the retired chief executive of the RNA. But we came up uh, with what I'd call as a cheeky solution to getting. Uh, live golf awgr points but let me also say we followed the rules and regulations to the letter we lodge our field in bangkok and they write to us and say oh uh, we're not going to give you the points uh, because we're going to have to do a review on what's happened uh, at mina to a level well that's just complete nonsense daniel i mean we, we, yeah,
1: because we, it was one hundred percent legit, right? It is, and look, I'm still waiting. Other, yeah,
0: I'm still waiting for the answer. I, right? I, by the way, every every time there's a live event on, I lodge the field with the OWGR. The OWGR acknowledges that they've received the field, um, uh, and then don't award points. Um, and there's so many, uh, and then. Uh, the technical committee, the technical committee of the OWGR, recuse themselves. Everyone recuses themselves because they say they have a conflict of interest um, from deciding on the mena tours uh, lived points. But we have four people uh, that the decision is in the hands of, and that's the four majors. Everyone else has recused themselves. And the chief executives, or their nominated, no, nominated person, are now making the Masters, uh, the Open, the U.S. Open, and the uh, PGA Championship of America. They're, they're making the decision on Live and Mina being awarded OWGR points. Now, I think that's an interesting point because obviously, it's better for the majors if if the Live players are awarded points. I mean, what? What, what's happened to the live players with these points um, is quite extraordinary. I mean, do, let's not just forget the points for the moment. All of their contracts um, with this with their sponsors are based on OWGR points. So they have actually, the decision not to give them points has actually hit them hard in the back pocket. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, I think the OWGR, there's a case... Uh, Not that we ever want to talk about legal cases in golf anymore, but there's a case that the uh, OWGR has been restraining the fair trade of these players by not awarding them points.
1: No, I see that. I completely see that. I mean, if you have fields that are technically like stout and live, uh, you know, and they're not recognized as legit events, hundred percent, right? If they're not getting the points and it's a legit field, so I had on this one guy, he uh, started this new system called Tugger. It's called um, the, I can't remember the acronym, but essentially like they created a new world ranking system. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of of uh, Tugger. Have you ever heard of Tugger? I
0: haven't. I've heard of the one that uh, is in Sports Illustrated. I don't know if that's the same one.
1: I'm not 100% sure, but I mean, like from a... Leadership perspective when like when you see that taking place and like you hear about the the merger that could exist, it just seems like they're going to have to adapt another framework, right? Moving forward, I mean they.
0: Well, no, they, they just, can't just
1: keep going with this, right? I
0: mean the AWGR um, is an incredible system. Um, I, I, do you, you know the background of it? Don't you? So it, it, about Mark McCormack, the founder of IMG um he started it um with a with a, a effectually an actuarial and a mathematician it's a very interesting system unfortunately <clears throat> there were some recent changes introduced to it August last year um where you know they got rid of the home tour ranking and they got rid of minimum points um so, And the reason why they did that was because of the PGA Tour. And the reason the PGA Tour wanted that removed, because they said um, if you took two two good examples they used were Jazz Jenna Watarong, the Thai player, um, and Justin Harding, the South African player, they said, oh, they've risen into the world top 50 too easily. Um, so, you know, the, the PGA Tour... Um, put so much pressure on the OWGR to change the system that they did. And, you know, it's a lot harder now uh, for a kid, you know, from Southeast Asia or Australia. I mean, it's a real long slog for them um, to to get to the PGA Tour as it currently stands um, because, you know, these minimum points have been removed. And my question is to that, a question I want to ask Jay Monaghan, Uh, about OWGR, is how removing these home tour rankings and these minimum points, how is that possibly growing the game? Um, You know, you're making it harder for international players um, to make it onto the PGA Tour. And, you know, I would have thought, particularly in this day and age, the PGA Tour would all be about inclusiveness, internationality, you know, spreading their wings throughout the world. Uh, but no, 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 It's uh, the PGA Tour say it's too easy for an Asian player to get into the World Top 50 and then be invited to. So the AWGR has to change it. And that's exactly what happened. But, uh, you know, a, a not publicized thing that happened at AWGR level. And it was interesting because I was asked to consult uh, by the AWGR to the group that were reviewing the new rules and regulations, um, uh, a group called 21st Group, who were working behind the scenes with OWGR. And I asked one question, and I said, I understand this new system, but what happens if one of these tours, uh, like the Asian tour, or the MENA tour, I said, yeah, it could be the MENA tour, what happens if all of a sudden we get a whole lot of money Um, and we can attract players. Uh, I mean, you you, you are winning.
1: I mean, I just looked at that investment at $300 million to the Asian Tour, right? Yeah. A couple of years ago, or or Live, obviously.
0: So, um, you know, the OWGR, I think that absolutely, definitely, um, the Live players have to be given points. Mm -hmm. I think that, the fair result would be they should all be awarded points back to Bangkok last year. Um, So
1: retroactive?
0: Absolutely. That would reflect their true... I mean, they'll they'll bump up a little bit because they've had the advantages uh, that some of the tournaments have dropped off their ranking. But, you know, look, uh, if they're going to make this merger and alliance into a respectful level playing field, the first thing they have to do, in my opinion, is get the world rankings correct. Um, um, and, you know, they can take as long as they want putting this merger together. But the, the live players absolutely categorically and scientifically uh, deserve those points. Uh, the mena Tour has not done anything but follow the OWGR guidelines to the letter. Um, and they're still being, you know... Uh, we're being slow played, um, and it's you know it's not, it's not fair uh, to all of the members of the mena tour, um, but it's particularly not fair to the live
1: players. Right? Can we talk through some of those guidelines that you had to abide by?
0: Yeah, sure. Because, <laughs>
1: like you said, on paper, on paper, they are literally like to a T. They should qualify as you know an event right that would garner these points
0: yeah so the guidelines for the main as well for the awgr tours first of all we have 54 hole tournaments uh we've always had 54 hole tournaments we've always received uh world ranking points and by the way we receive whatever world ranking points we get we get 100 percent of them even though we only play 54 holes so we tick that box um the, the year that the live players joined the Mina Tour, we were given an exemption by the OWGR to not having a qualifying school because of COVID. Uh, so, all of uh, you know, any golfer, any professional golfer could join the MENA Tour, which they did. We have over 300 members uh, during the uh, <clears throat> and of those members, you know, 58 or 60 of them happen to be live golfers as well. Um, they talk about not having a cut um which is actually we have a lot of yeah we can give example after example after example uh of tournaments that don't have a cut at the highest level and down at development to a level i think another important issue with the cut is that you know we had suggested um to the OWGR, why don't we have an internal cut this is a really good idea that a lot of tournaments should
1: be. An internal cut. Yeah,
0: so we say we're playing 48 players. But you know what? At the end of the three days, at the end of the 54 holes, only award OWGR points to 32 of them um, instead of 48 <clears throat> because that will create a lot of excitement for the players as well. Um, you know, so... You know,
1: that, that was, and then you were able to still have the team golf as well, obviously, right? The
0: team golf's fine. I mean, you know, people people are, are they're going to use the team golf, but the team golf's fine. Um, they're not mm-hmm. playing, you know, together uh, as teams day in day out. Um, the other side of it uh, is that you know you have to have been. Yeah, uh, you know, we are a fully fledged tour. We joined in two thousand and sixteen, served our three years of probation, uh, and became a fully fledged OWGR tour. Now we can um, uh, sponsor. We we can do whatever events we want in any part of the world that we want, uh, according to the OWGR regulations. Um, So if we're playing events in America or the Middle East or Southeast Asia or Europe. Um, You know, we are not bound by geography. Um, The other side of it is is that you have to have one order of merit, uh, which we do. And if you look at the mena Tour website, you'll see the live players are leading the order of merit. But we have also within our own tour what we have called a development ranking system. So we have awards. For players playing in our events that are seventy five thousand dollars in prize money, so you know we didn't just sort of come up with this system and say, "Oh, let's give it a go and try and pull the wool over the OWGR's eyes." We we had every part of this thought through, every answer, um, and the OWGR and the technical committees. You know they're they're too they're too proud in some ways to admit that we're right. Uh, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to fight tooth and nail, not on behalf of uh, Liv, not on behalf of, uh, you know, the PIF or anyone. I'm going to fight for the golfers that should be getting these points because, you know, uh, it's they have been unfairly discriminated against by the OWGI, by them not awarding points. And I'm going to, you know... I don't care if it takes me uh, the rest of my life. As long as I've got breath, I'm going to be trying to get these points retrospectively awarded to the live players.
1: Mm -hmm. So, like, you know, we have talks of the merger. I mean, how do you see this playing out? Do you see them, like, eventually caving? I mean, if Live and PGA are, are, like, you know, if they're together, there's a strategic alliance, right? Like, the world of golf has to recognize... You know these two tours, or or live now, and honor the points, or, I mean, kind of, wake. Like, where exactly are we at in this?
0: Well, I think um, there's a lot of <clears throat> water to keep flowing under the bridge, so to speak. Um, I think one of the things that we should try and do, as an industry, is let the golf keep mm-hmm. playing. Let's try and 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 let this happen behind closed doors, <clears throat> with the correct, but let's also keep the players informed. I mean, can you imagine as a player owned organization that you make Mm. an announcement that you're going to merge with your biggest competitor and you don't tell any of the players?
1: Well, after bashing it for months and and years, right? I mean,
0: well, that's, that's the other side. I mean, how do you think there's some podcasters that there's some podcasters that I, uh, uh, that, you know, follow, um, you yeah, know, made lots of big jokes about the
1: Mina tour and live. guys are deleting tweets. I mean,
0: I mean, No Laying Up and um, the Fire Pit Collective. Um, you know, I think that's what it's called. Here's a couple of podcasts that are, are going to, uh, you know, they're shaping opinion, but without doing any research. Um, you know, they, none, none of them, No Laying Up uh was not interested that I had any background at all you know uh the fire pit collective published a story saying the Mina tour is this you know desert tour that didn't pay its players um you know and we we answered uh the the fire pit collective asked us for a comment we we gave them a written comment and then the guy that published the story, said, oh, I I didn't receive your comment in time. And we said, well, that's just not right, mate. You know, you did. So then he put an apology in. But why can't everyone just actually sit down, look at the facts, look what has to happen, and then move on? I mean, I didn't, uh, you've never, uh, I mean, my friends, my colleagues, my players will tell you, I've never said a bad word throughout this whole thing about, the PGA tour about the DP world tour, um, about live. Um, I could see why live was born. It was born mm-hmm. because players were frustrated with being treated like mushrooms, being kept in the dark and fed. Well, you know, the line,
1: <laughs> right? Yeah. Grow the game. i I'm guilty of saying that too, Dave. So I got to watch, I got to watch that. But you'd mentioned like a breakaway tour having been a thing for a while. Um, you know, when you think about live, would you consider live as like I mean a breakaway tour, or how would you kind of um, like talk through that whole breakaway tour idea and like the execution of live so far?
0: Well, I think the execution of live has been actually excellent um, with the with the hands they've been dealt. Um, but you know, they, they to fight for players to get players. I mean, players. Th- there is no way in the world, no matter how much money you've is being thrown around. There's no way in the world players like Brooks Kepka or Dustin Johnson or Bryson DeChambeau, who I have a huge amount of respect for, particularly Bryson, are jumping ship because they're happy. You know, they were unhappy um, and they saw the opportunity. Cam Smith um you know I, I don't think he was particularly happy uh because they none of them knew what their their rights images were uh none of them knew you know they they were just they were meant to be independent contractors um so the people that took the leap of faith um to to go to live i think in a lot of ways uh, are being proven to be very clever at the moment. I mean, what, you know, we're, we're seeing this thing. <clears> hundred
1: percent, <throat> right? I mean,
0: we're seeing this thing, excuse me, dude. Yeah. we're seeing this thing where everyone's saying, oh, um, you know, how, how would you like to be Ricky Fowler? Uh, here's a guy that, you know, up until the, the, the US Open was struggling for form, was allegedly offered $75 million. Probably would have been a smart move for him. Big, and a big curve mm-hmm. for Liv at the time and turned it down because of loyalty. Who, who's going to compensate Ricky Fowler for that? And, you know, I know a few yeah. of the players that are saying that they're going to be offered equity in the new co. Um, in
1: yeah, the- I mean, I heard about that as well. Like, you had mentioned talking and fighting for retroactive, um, you know, OWGR parts. I wonder if anyone on the other side, like the PGA Tour side, will be fighting for, for that, like retroactive payouts oh, for, sure for those potential offers. Okay, you think?
0: And okay, the players that are talking about, I mean, I know one player that I've talked to, and I said, "Yeah, forget equity, go for the cash. You, you, I mean, equity in organization depends on how the organization is run. What are going to be the salaries of the new executives in this new co? Um, you know, uh, if I'm if I'm going to have equity in a company like that, I want to know the full detailed business plan um, of that company. Um, and, you know, w- w- what are the policies and procedures? Does everyone, uh, do all the executives um, in the new code, do they fly around on private jets? You know, what, w- w- why should the executives of the PGA2 fly on private jets? The players are paying for that. Why are they doing that? I mean, they—they, they, uh, the Masters has Delta as a sponsor. Uh, isn't Delta good enough for the executives of the PGA Tour? I know it's not. They're not part of the Masters, but there's so many things um, that need to be looked at um, and need to be brought. I mean, when I worked for Kerry Packer, uh, Australia's richest man, one of the big visionaries of sport. Um, he always said to me, don't ever confuse yourself with the stars that you represent. And, you know, a lot of these golf executives have confused themselves with the players and um, you know, they, they sort to think of,
1: that they just offered like that, I don't know what the right word is, but I'm just going to use this word, like stipend of 500000 a year for players. I mean, you'd hear it in the past about guys not even really being able to like make any money, right, being a, a member on the tour. So things like that are interesting when you, you lay that $500,000 salary over what a, an executive might make, right? Exactly.
0: And what about, uh, Daniel, all these guys… Players, <clears throat> I'd like to ask the top players: What are they doing for the young professionals coming through? <clears throat> the young professionals on the Mina Tour, the young professionals on the Alps Tour, um, <clears throat> you know, all, all these different tours around the, you know, the New Mexican Tour. Um, all of this, if 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 this uh, new co is going to go ahead, they should have a look. Um, at helping the development tours and underpinning them and finding, you know, this is all about finding stars last year after 20 years in business, uh, the Euro pro tour based in, in England closed its doors after 20 years in business. They were the official feeder tour of the PGA tour and the DP world tour. And they, No one helped them. I know that they said, we're really struggling. They went to the PGA Tour. They went to the DP World Tour and asked them for for financial assistance. None was forthcoming. The tour closed its doors. You know, we need to take all of these millions and millions and millions of dollars that are being talked about and funnel some of it back into development golf. And, you know, that is at, at you can grow the game in different ways. But for the health and the respect of the men's professional game, they need to start looking after what happens down at mena tour level, Alps tour level, uh, you know Mexican tour, PGA of Latin America, etc. Yeah. These and even
1: yeah. further, like into mini tours as well, or
0: yeah. well, I mean, you know, <clears throat> there are different tours. Look, it, there's a tour in um, uh, the UK. That I sort of admire, <laughs> called the Clutch Pro Tour. Clutch Pro Tour. Now they've got a couple of sponsors, um, and they do a good job of organising some events. But the players are playing for their own money. Yeah, because the it, one thing that most people don't know is that entry fees on most development tours are enormous. <clears throat> yeah. So you need
1: relative to. To like a pro tour because isn't the pro tour buying like fifty bucks or something?
0: Well, as an example, the main tour. One of the things we our our entry fees are fifty dollars, right? But there are tons of development tours where you got you know you got one hundred and forty guys playing, an entry fee is five hundred bucks.
1: Yeah, I heard Q School is like you know two thousand two and a half thousand, thousand, right? Yeah, Yeah. to even just try, you know
0: so and you know we don't um you know human nature is that you hear about the pinnacle of the game um the pinnacle of business but i think uh you know if i was a netflix producer (laughs) the story i would be making is about q schools um the grind you know two guys sharing a room in a 50 buck motel um you know, you know, missing the cut, you know, pooling their money to get a bus to the next destination. These are the great stories. Um, whether you know Scotty Scheffler is going to fly on NetJets this week on a Citation or a Gulfstream Five, I don't really care about that. Uh, I mean, I like Scotty Scheffler, but these lavish lifestyles that uh, are being thrown around. And I'm using Scotty as an example. <clears throat> um, People people tire of that because they can't relate to it. We want to we want to look up to our heroes in in this life, but we also want them to be relatable. Um, And unfortunately, part of what's happened is that with golf, is is that the top male professional golfers um, are are leading such a lavish lifestyle now. It's sort of you know, do I want them to be my heroes anymore? Do I? I mean, I've got three uh, four grandchildren do I want this current regime of what's going on? Do I want my grandchildren to have them as heroes? I don't know that I do.
1: Where do you see all of this kind of going and playing out? Can we go through like best and worst case scenarios with you? Like what do you think the best, most bullish case scenario is? Assuming like the merger takes place and goes through and then like the worst case.
0: Well, I think the worst case is it won't go through. Um, And, you know, I really hope, uh, if that happens, I, I sincerely hope that the Saudis um, and Yasser in particular don't lose their passion for golf um, and say, "Oh, this is all too hard." Let's invest in you know, tennis, or let's invest in uh, because I think they actually have a lot to <clears throat> offer the golf industry globally. The best case scenario is that some sort of merger happens uh, live golf and team golf uh, the team part of it continues to flourish or will flourish and let's hope we have a really dynamic young person preferably in my opinion uh, a woman leading the new co um, that's willing to make changes surround herself with individuals That are much smarter than she or he is, uh, and really start to make some change because they certainly have the capital to make the changes. Um, You know, we went from the best case scenario is is that um, there needs to be a balance between leadership and stars, Um, and that is not currently the case. And I think that this merger could lead to that very balance and become a very good thing. And the best case scenario, of course, um, hopefully one day you and I'll be talking. And uh, <clears throat> my live players and the MENA Tour will have their rightly deserved OWGR points.
1: So you'd mentioned some changes. Like ideally, what are some of those changes, or what do you think are areas people should be looking at, like leadership should be looking at specifically to like further investigate and and maybe shake things up? On
0: well, I mean, I think that we live too much um, on <clears throat> haven't we all done a great job for charity? Um, I'd like to know what is the uh, philanthropic side of golf. What are we actually, you know, are we using charities as an industry? Are we using charities as a way of paying less tax, or are we using charities to make a difference? Um, I'd like to have a very clear set of guidelines as to what the philanthropic side of the men's professional game of golf is i'd like to know i'd like to understand um and i think the newco can do this what what image rights do players own of themselves uh of uh you know have they sold all their image rights into the newco um
1: because, you know, that so stands now with like the PGA Tour. I mean, the PGA Tour, anytime it's an event's filmed, right? Like on a, or in a PGA Tour event, the PGA Tour would own the rights to that image, right?
0: Correct. Um, and, you know, I also want to understand, uh, <clears throat> in this new co, you know, the PGA Tour has an incredible, uh, I don't know what you call it in America, but like a retirement program.
1: Right, like a pension.
0: Pension has an amazing pension system. Let's find out about that. What exactly is it, and why does the European Tour not have one at all?
1: <laughs> you know, really, they don't at all.
0: No, so I mean, you know, people. The European Tour want over the years have want people to be faithful to them. Why haven't they started a pension system for their players? You know, what uh, have they got? Have they got? Do all players have? a certain level of medical coverage, et cetera. I mean, we, we need to be big enough and strong enough as an industry to lay out what the rights are that everyone has and then try and improve them. And some people are going to lose out a bit when you do that, but it's much better than doing all this cloak and dagger stuff where, um, you know, well, of course players want to get on to the PGA Tour because, you know, they're a not-for-profit organisation The conditions for the players financially, I guess, are better than on the DP World European Tour. Mm
1: -hmm. So when you look at DP World Tour versus PGA Tour from like as a commissioner, I mean, like how are they kind of different from an organizational and standpoint? I mean, you'd mentioned basically what I understand is the PGA Tour would have been or was nonprofit. We'll see where it goes. I mean, they talk about putting like the PGA Tour into like its own entity, right? But then is the, is the DP two, DP World Tour, is that like a for-profit entity? Well, that's going to go into
0: the NUCO, uh, mm-hmm. allegedly, from what I've read and I'm sure you've read. But, mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, the DP World Tour, let, let, let's, uh, uh, you yeah, know, the DP World Tour changed its complete operation since Keith Bailey took over. Mm-hmm. He's a good operator. Um, but you know, he took, uh, all he was driven by at the beginning was getting more money into the coffers through sponsorship. Um, and you know, he created this series of Rolex events, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the, the elevated events, I think you call them in America. Well, these
1: Rolex. Yeah, wait, real fast. So, like, as a commission, like, would you consider like the sponsorship revenue? So, when you think about like revenue forms of a a tour, it, I'm assuming like merch would be a part of it, ticket sales would be a part of it, right? Like TV rights, sponsorships as well.
0: Yep, absolutely. Uh, entry, okay, so entry he's just things. trying to bring in as
1: much. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay.
0: And you know the the basic thing. Um, uh with the Rolex deal was that these elevated events, um, I mean, they had a lot of them had very weak fields. Uh so if you were you know, a lot of them uh were under two hundred and fifty strength of field points on the OWGR. I mean if uh yeah so the the tour became the European tour became a lot more mercenary. Um, I think. And, you know, it tried to survive away from the PGA Tour. Then, of course, um, prior to LIV being established, uh, uh, the, the Saudis offered the European Tour a lot of money. And the European Tour went to the PGA Tour. And the PGA Tour said, oh, we can't let this happen. So we'll, 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 we'll sort of take you over but you'll be operating independently, et cetera, et cetera. But they're not. I mean, the European Tour is part of the PGA Tour now. Um, and, you know, uh, unfortunately, for my, I mean, I have a love and a passion <clears throat> for European golf. But in my opinion, uh, at the moment, the way it currently stands, it's just a feeder tour to the PGA. I mean, you, you, you look at these, you know, whether you're, Tommy Fleetwood, Bob McIntyre. Um, I mean, I I can. Uh, yeah, I think the the, the big loser <clears throat> uh, out of what's happened over the last couple of years is the European Tour. It's it's hurt them disproportionately. Um, so right. I, th- I, th- I think I think because I mean,
1: like you said, all those guys at the end of the day really are trying to get on tour, or excuse me, on the PGA Tour, right?
0: Yeah, and I mean, I don't see what's wrong with that. Um, You know, help your members get on to the PGA Tour. Instead of uh, saying, oh, well, you know, we don't want them to leave, make them play a minimum number of events. The way you make players play a minimum number of events on your tour is you know them, you're nice to them, you try and help them when times are good, uh, when times are bad, you try and help them with invitations. I mean, you just, you you are effectively, you know, you, you, you're not some, a, a tour commissioner uh, has to be a jack of all trades and master of most. Um, and he has to understand the wants of his players. I mean, I can certainly tell you um, that the players can be quite difficult, uh, but you have to, look at what they're going through and saying okay what what, why is he or she thinking that um and then try and come up with a plan for them and i you know it's it's as much as a business uh it it is a business uh all of this it also is something that you have to to be successful in you have to have a lot of compassion um and to be successful with the players you have to have a lot of compassion and understand i mean i know Um, what players want. Um, You know, there's more to this than just money. Um, They want to play in great destinations. There's a certain type of accommodation that they want. They want to know that they're safe. Uh, They want to know that they can get, you know, nutritious food, that transport won't be a problem. It's not just all about who's got the most money. Although, you know, everything that we'd read uh seems to say that is the case these days but that's not true
1: definitely interesting time as a fan but i imagine as a you know commissioner as well there's like all of this uh i don't know if right the right word is like uncertainty um but it's just interesting and and like on the outside looking in like i i feel like it'll be good but we'll you know we're gonna have to see how this all plays out definitely interesting love the game of golf um so we'll see. But, you know, we're coming up on that hour mark. So I just wanted to get all of your, your closing thoughts, Dave.
0: Well, my closing thoughts are, um, you know, we, li- we live in a pretty strange world anyway at the moment. We've come out of this uh, sort of two-year hiatus period. And everyone seems to have come out of that period being a bit more aggressive than they used to be. But what about we just wind the clock back uh, and just all try and be a bit nice to each other Understand uh, that people have differing points of view. A different point of view is not a wrong point of view. It can be a a, a platform to something bigger. Um, And I really, really want to see the other commissioners around the world think about these are player-driven organisations. Let's be as transparent as we can with the players at all times. And, you know, let's accept uh, that the Middle East um, and particularly Saudi now. They have a big role to play in professional sport, but particularly our uh, incredible game of golf. So, you know, I, I want to welcome them with open arms. I want to welcome everyone that wants to be in the golf industry with open arms. And uh, let's look to the future. And hopefully the next time we speak, Daniel, um, I'll have my players, their Jap points that they deserve. But, and uh, I wish all your listeners in america all the very best and please get on the best airline in the world in emirates and come and visit us in the middle east and we'll show you some real uh, global hospitality
1: absolutely love that i really appreciate your time david thank you so much for coming on